Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 90 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Good Wife, an interview with Jennifer Gladys. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Jennifer Gladys. Jennifer Gladys is a 46-year-old health coach and Lyme co-pilot from Joshua Tree, California. Ms. Gladys and her husband, Keith, lived in upstate New York when he first started to exhibit the symptoms of a tick disease. Mr. Gladys fell off of a horse and had issues with his neck and his back. The pain from his injury spread to other parts of his body and especially congregating in his knees. He tested positive for Lyme disease and was given doxycycline, but it didn't help. Mr. Gladys, a musician, couldn't make music and he couldn't be around his two children. His sensitivity to sound was too severe. The couple finally went to the famous Dr. Daniel Cameron, who put Mr. Gladys on long-term antibiotics. Through the help of his wife, Mr. Gladys also benefited from the Dr. Stephen Buhner Herbal Protocol, cannabis, and the carnivore diet. Hey, Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you guys about our experiences. Well, we're really blessed to have you on today, and we'd like you to please begin the podcast by introducing yourself to our audience. Uh, my name's Jen Gladys, and currently I live in Joshua Tree. I'm from New York, and uh, my husband, Keith Gladys, has had Lyme for the last 10 years, uh, and he's been in remission for the last year. Do you and Keith have any children? We do. We have three kids. I have an older daughter who's 24 and who's um, living in Buffalo. And I have two younger kids, an eight-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. We're glad at least some members of your family stayed in New York. I mean, the rest of you decided to <laughs> abandon us to the West Coast. So thank you for leaving one behind. Uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to get her to move out here. So fingers crossed. So, Jen, before you left us and went to the left coast, can you share with us what you were doing here in New York? Yes. So, I, Keith and I both grew up on Long Island. Uh, then we lived in the city for a number of years. And we had a, a pet care business in Brooklyn for 15 years. At a certain point in the business, I was able to work remotely. So, we moved upstate to uh, first West Shokan, then New Paltz, and then Kingston. So all in like the Catskill Mountain area. And when did Keith first begin to show the symptoms of a tick disease? Well, in 2009, um, so when we moved upstate, we did the full country life. We bought nine acres and we had a huge garden and we had horses and chickens and llamas. Uh, and we were riding horses and he, one day he fell off our horse and it wasn't a bad fall, but you know, it was enough where he had some neck pain after he fell off the horse and the neck pain lingered longer than we would have thought. And I kept saying, I think something else is going on. That's weird. And he kept saying, oh, no, it's just from the horse. You know, I just fell and, and hit my neck and it just hurt. So, uh, you know, he did all the normal things you do when you hurt yourself, you know, ice in the beginning, heat, you know, stretching, you know, just trying to take care of himself. But it still didn't go away. And then the pain started to travel to different parts of his body, especially his knees. and 
we just began to really suspect, you know, something is going on here. And before, before yep. you go too far, too far forward with that portion of your story, which we're going to come back to, I want to get a little bit more of a sense of what you were doing and what Keith was doing and what your kids were doing prior to the fall. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you indicated that you had a business that allowed you to work remotely and you were able to move upstate. Yeah. What was Keith doing at that time professionally? So he, Keith's a musician and an artist. So he was making music. Um, in the beginning, we, uh, he helped me with our dog walking business, but um, then I took it over. But his main profession is music and, and uh, art. So what kinds of things were you and Keith pursuing professionally before he had fallen off the horse and suffered his injury? Well, we were actually at this point, I think, you know, his music career has kind of taken different, <laughs> um, different ways. So, you know, he was in a band at first and then it was him and myself playing music together. So, um, you know, at this point we were traveling, playing shows, he was recording music you know, I was mainly running the dog walking business. We were both taking care of our children. Well, really at this point, it was just Emma. So it was our older daughter. And, you know, we were just living our dream country life uh, up there, you know, in the mountains, you know, taking care of our animals and um, running around in the woods with bare feet. And looking back now, I'm like, why were we doing that? (laughs) We should have known better. But um, yeah, so we were we were very active, you know, before moving upstate that we would go upstate all as many weekends as we could camping, hiking, you know, it was our dream to be up there and in nature. What kind of a dad was Keith to your then uh, oldest child? Was he very involved in her life? Was he a very active dad or was he a different kind of dad? Uh, he was a very involved dad. We, since we both work from home, we both try to spend as much, a lot of time with our kids. It's, you know, a priority for us. So my sense is the way you're describing this sort of picturesque life that you had, you, your husband and your daughter all moved upstate New York. You were living in this beautiful environment. You were able to work from home. You were able to spend a lot of time together and, and support each other through various professional pursuits. And then Keith fell off the horse. Yes. And everything changed? And things started to change. It was gradual. And I think that that's part of the problem. I've been thinking a lot lately about denial. (laughs) And I think there was a level of denial. And also, you know, we didn't know better. Uh, But there was a level of denial about what was going on and whether he was actually sick. And not just our own denial, but, you know, from the doctors as well. So, yeah, so he fell off the horse and it took us probably two years, maybe a year and a half before we actually got the diagnosis that it was Lyme. So let's pause there for a second, Jen. Yeah. You grew up on Long Island. Your husband grew up on Long Island. I'm sure ticks were a part of your lives. So yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us what you knew about ticks and what you knew about Lyme disease at the time things began to change from this beautiful life that you had set up for yourselves. Yes. So growing up, I remember my mom always saying, 
you know, ticks are dangerous. And my mom was like my Girl Scout leader. We would go camping. So I've always been out in the woods in nature. My mom is a nature person also. But she would always say, oh, ticks, you know, be really careful. You know, don't get ticks on you. You know, check for ticks. But there was never any talk of Lyme at that point. I think it was more like like Rocky Mountain spotted fever or other tick-borne diseases that we are a little bit more common knowledge. Not that a little bit more common knowledge. It's just that they're dangerous. Okay, so fast forward to high school. I had two friends get Lyme disease. And I remember them just putting that information. I also went to a very small high school. But uh, putting that information out there you know, uh, these two girls got Lyme disease, they had their antibiotics and they were better. That was what we heard. Fast forward to moving upstate, you know, we knew Lyme was there and we knew that there were ticks there, but not, we didn't realize, I think, especially from that high school experience where, you know, my two friends, you know, they were out of school for a couple of days, they took their antibiotics and they were better you know, that's what you think is going to happen. Like, okay, well, if it happens, I'll just take my antibiotics and I'll get better. Now, Keith falls off the horse. His health is beginning to decline. You're going from doctor to doctor trying to get a diagnosis. At any time Mm -hmm. as his symptoms were developing, did you think that he may have had Lyme disease? I don't think so. I I just don't think we knew what it was. And I can't really remember, I think it was just eventually a doctor was like, hey, let's test for Lyme. There was nobody else had suggested it to us. We just didn't think, you know, as I said, it was like a level of denial and a level of just not knowing. Uh, And then that doctor told us, oh, let's test for Lyme, you know, and some other things. I can't remember what else we were testing for, but just let's do this test. And then it, it came back positive, thankfully. And, you know, he, we never had, you know, the rash, the tick bite. We, we'd never seen anything like that. We just didn't know. So, Jen, we, we, we'd like to explore with you what the doctor carousel was like. So your, your husband falls off the horse. He has his St. Paul moment where, you know, things are beginning to change. He's, mm-hmm. getting, he's getting sicker. And so when's the first time you go to the doctor and why do you go to the doctor? The first time was just for the neck to see, you know, to make sure everything was okay. It wasn't a big deal and did the usual treatment like, oh, okay, well, you're just stiff because, you know, you fell off this horse and nothing was broken. Nothing was, um, you know, there wasn't any really diagnosis. It's just you fell off the horse, you're bruised, you have, you know, your muscles hurt. And, you know, it's a little hazy. Like, I can't remember. I just know that we went to a few different doctors, but it was mostly for that. Like, what's happening muscular or bone or, you know, wasn't, we didn't, like, we didn't think it was a sickness. We just thought, you know, it was an injury from falling. But Jen, now that you have a bit of a perspective, I'm going to ask you to Think about whether or not you believe Keith may have um, been harboring the bacteria for maybe a good portion of his entire life before that because he was bitten by a tick during his childhood or some other time on Long Island. Or do you think he was bitten by a tick 
just before he had begun to show the symptoms after the horse incident? I suspect that either on one of those weekends going upstate or, you know, once we moved up there that he got bitten. That's my suspicion. I mean, when I say we were running around the woods barefoot, like, you know, like being in nature, like that's what we were doing uh, a lot. And I have a feeling, you know, I mean, Keith meditates and he, you know, I think he goes out in the woods and sits down and I just suspect that, you know, and it's possible that he had been bitten before in his life, but I, I suspect it happened once we moved up. But it sounds to me that you suspect that the chronic Lyme disease took off because he suffered the traumatic fall. So I'm, mm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to get a sense from you of why you think it may have been, uh, you know, the tick bite might have taken place shortly before the fall rather than some other time during his life. You know, Keith has always played basketball. Like That was his big thing. He's always been an active person. He's had other injuries before. You know, when we had our pet care business, you know, in the beginning, it was just us walking dogs. <laughs> and then it grew into this thing where we had, you know, 50 people working for us and we weren't walking dogs anymore. So he'd been very active and there had been other injuries before that didn't act the same as this injury. So I would think if he had been bitten as a child that he would have been sicker sooner, but it is definitely possible that he, you know, was bitten. I mean, we've been camping and hiking for years, so it's possible it could have happened at any time then. So Jennifer, after the pain started to migrate from Keith's neck and went into his knees and yeah. other parts of his body, what were the doctors saying was the cause of that, that new migrating pain that could probably no longer be associated with the fall? They would just look at like, oh, his knees are just sore. You know, bad knees do run in Keith's family. It was your primary care physician who ultimately recommended that Keith get tested for Lyme disease, right? Yeah, and I think, I think, I just don't know why that wasn't the first thing. And I, again, it goes back to denial in my in my mind it's just this denial that this thing is happening that people are getting sick and Jennifer once he got diagnosed what was the treatment course prescribed by his primary care physician three weeks of antibiotics and it was it was doxycycline and did Keith feel any better at all throughout that three-week window there was some improvement and I think that is typical of many of the things that we've tried is that he would have a little bit of initial improvement and then get worse. And once this three-week course of antibiotics was over, which I think all of us now know was not adequate for Keith, what was mm -hmm. he feeling at that point? Was he feeling a temporary relief or was he still in a bad spot at the end of that three-week period? There was a, a, a window of temporary relief, and then the symptoms started to slowly come back. And what was Keith's primary care physician saying now that he was treated with the three weeks of doxycycline? The doctor probably felt that should have been enough to cure the Lyme. What was happening, mm -hmm. and what was that interaction like with the doctor and you and Keith? We went back to her a number of times, um, and... She just kept saying, oh, he's had his three weeks of antibiotics. He's 
better there. And then it took a number of times, but I remember there was one appointment pretty much the last time I think we even bothered seeing her. She finally admitted to me that he was still sick, but she just looked me in the eye and said, there was nothing else she could do for us. And it was just, you know, mind blowing and, you know, demoralizing. Prior to this point where she acknowledged that Keith had a, a real physical illness, it's still at this point, right at the end, did she ever indicate prior to that, that it could have been a mental health illness because the treatment was done and she felt he was cured? She did not, but he saw a um, like, top infectious disease doctor in the city. And I cannot remember whether it was Columbia or NYU, but that doctor retested Keith. He came back positive on one band and the doctor said, Keith's not sick anymore. He'll always show a little positive because of the antibodies, but this is a negative test and it's all in your head. And it was just crushing. How was Keith being affected by these progressing symptoms? Was he able to pursue his career as a musician? Was he able to be the dad that he had been before? How are these, these events changing him? So it did progress somewhat slowly. And then also, I think, again, our denial of how sick he was. So you know, we were young people, not expecting either one of us was going to be chronically ill. And the doctors, you know, there's still, a, I mean, there's still a question of whether chronic Lyme disease exists, although we know it absolutely does, you know, but there's still that question out there in the mainstream medical community. So all of those things kind of contributed to us just not really facing it as much as we probably should have. And it, since the regular medicine wasn't helping us and he was still not feeling well, you know, we did now start our path to find different ways to have him feel better, but he's starting to increasingly need to sleep, need to take time for himself, uh, mood issues happening, you know, chronic pain. So those things are all happening at that time while we're still trying to pretend like everything's okay and then at the same time seeking other means of treatment. Jennifer, some, some people that have Lyme disease have what they describe as Lyme rage, where whether it's their symptoms <laughs> or neurological condition, they, they get this rage they never had before in their life. Did Keith ever experience anything like that? Yes, I think he definitely had some anger issues. And, you know, there was a time when that absolutely affected our daughter, maybe more so than me. Um, you know, when you have a teenager, <laughs> it can be challenging. So I think um, his anger would come out at her. And there'd be times when I would pull him aside and we'd, we'd talk about it. And, and I would say, hey, you know, maybe we should just, you know, your anger is affecting things here. You know, if, if she's doing something that needs instruction or correction or 
you know, some parental advice, maybe I should be the one to do that. So what advice would you give to our listeners who are going through Lyme Rage currently? What could you provide to them as a tip based on your observations with Keith to help them get through it and beyond it? Well, Keith did a lot of hard work and through this, his whole journey. And I would say meditation was hugely helpful for him. And he did work at this time. He was working with, a teacher who did, you know, guided meditation and he was part of a meditation group. So that was uh, very helpful. Jennifer, backing up a little bit, because you mentioned that you went to New York City and saw some of the best doctors where the infectious disease doctor told Keith that you don't have Lyme anymore. You're always going to have a band positive because of the antibodies and it's in your head. But before that, you actually had found an osteopath locally who had prescribed Keith an additional, I think, six weeks of antibiotics. Can you walk us through that piece? Yes. I think actually the osteopath happened post seeing that doctor. Um, and that was a, a turning point when we found that osteopath who um, would do these osteopathic sessions with Keith and it would help his body feel better. And it was just, you know, and an osteopath is a actually, you know, medical school doctor, MD. So that osteopath told Keith that he believed that Keith was still sick. He said, I don't know what it is, whether we're calling it chronic Lyme or, you know, what it is. I don't know why it happens uh, for some people that it seems to linger, but I believe that you're really ill. And that was, you know, like just so helpful to have somebody tell you that they believe you. And he was willing to give Keith six weeks of antibiotics, but he couldn't give him more because he was afraid he would lose his license. So I want to learn more about what it was like for Keith now. He was already on the three weeks of antibiotics. He got a little bit better, had a little period afterwards where he was feeling better and then declined again. Did this now six weeks of antibiotics have any additional improvement with his health or did he sort of plateau at that point and not get any better? So again, it was that little bit of improvement that makes you feel like, oh, okay, we might be on the right track here, but then it doesn't last. And then, you know, <laughs> the wind is taken out of your sails yet again because this treatment, you know, didn't help. And as time went on, Keith just continued to decline now. So post this six-week period of, of doxycycline from the osteopath, things got so bad with his sound and light sensitivity that you actually had to, I think, separate your locations in the home. So can you, can you talk to us about how his symptoms worsened and how it impacted your family? Yes. So at this point, you know, it's been a little while, a little bit of time uh, until we get to this point. You know, I had my son eight years ago and um, at, when I had Flint, Keith, it was like, we, we still didn't think Keith was that sick at that point. So we had a baby and then we started, we did a little bit of traveling and then we decided to, but at this point we had decided to move from this house on nine acres to a smaller house in New Paltz. So we, so we moved there we had our son, my daughter went off to college. So Keith's like, still having problems, but we're still somewhat functioning. 
then we decide to move again and we moved to Kingston and I had my daughter who was a surprise, but a happy surprise. <laughs> uh, but Keith was more sick at this point. He was able to help me through a difficult pregnancy. But once she came, that's when things really took like a big downward spiral where we were living in a mother-daughter house. So we had a small apartment downstairs and then the main house upstairs. I was, you know, raising two young children and Keith was walking with a cane. He could, he had social anxiety. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't be around the kids because his sound sensitivity was so bad that he would just have to run away. And it's difficult to tell two little kids that you have to be quiet. So we were living separately and I was, you know, and he would, I mean, he would spend as much time with the kids that he, as he could, but it was not much time at all. And, you know, he missed the kids and he missed, he missed spending time with him. He was also sleeping a lot and it would just, I would go downstairs to take care of him and, you know, he'd be in this dark bedroom, you know, sleeping many, many hours a day, just in pain. And, you know, that was, that was the darkest, darkest time. Jen, I'd like to talk to you about the contrast between who Keith was before he got Lyme disease and now the Keith that we hear you describing as a guy who's living separate from his children, staying in the dark, mm -hmm. not playing music, not being a good husband. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a really stark contrast that I think we need to emphasize. So just share with us a little bit what kind of dad Keith was and what kind of husband he was and what kind of a professional was he before he had gotten sick so we can compare it to what you just described for us. Yes. So Keith is like a super sweet guy. He loves his children, loves spending time with them. When we're at the playground, like kids flock to him. Like they know he loves to play and they, and he does. He's just so he's better at it than I am. Like I'm not the best player and, but the kids just love to spend time with him. Um, in terms of music, you know, he's focused, he's driven, you know, when this all happened, his career was on the upswing, you know, things were happening, you know, and he loves to make, he's just focused. He's just amazing musician and he loves to make music. And he was always a social person, you know, loves to talk to people, loves to, you know, connect with people, just like an all around great guy that people, you know, like to hang out with. <laughs> um, and then an active person, you know, played basketball, loves to go to the beach, loves to go camping, all of those things out in nature, you know, we used to kayak all the time. We have this athletic, yeah. outdoorsy, man who is kind, who loved his children, who loved his wife, who, you know, created this environment with you uh, where you would have the ability to spend a lot of time together and then it crashes, right? He's, he's now an 80 year old yeah. man um, hiding in the yeah. dark, not playing music, not interacting with his children, just, you know, isolated from all of you. Yeah. And, and, and that isolation, like, we were, it was, there was a number of years where none of us could be social. Like we would just be home and 
we couldn't have friends over and we couldn't, you know, we would travel to see family sometimes, you know, for the holidays or whatever. And my mom's on Long Island. And, you know, so we would still try to keep that up as much as we could. But, you know, there was a time where we were all hermits. So how, how is this affecting you? It was very stressful. So Jen, how is that stress presenting itself? I mean, you're, you now have three children, yeah. one in college, two younger children. Yeah. Um, you have a business that you're running. You have a husband that you're caring for. How is this affecting you? Yeah. So I am the kind of person that pushes everything down and just gets the job done. And I would, I would just look at what needed to happen and make it happen, but completely stressed, um, emotional eating for sure emotional drinking, you know, I'm holding it together for the kids, mostly. Stop taking care of myself. You know, my self-care went out the window. You know, I didn't have a haircut for like two years. <laughs> um, you know, I just kept, I held it together. And, you know, I had this business where I had 50 people working for me and depending on me. So there were it felt like there were people depending on me everywhere I turned. Um, and I just wanted to make sure, you know, I provided what they needed and, and didn't let anybody down. But to my own detriment, you know, gaining weight, not feeling well, and just stressed. So how did you ultimately manage this stress? And what impact did that have on your capacity to parent your two young children? Um, it, it was difficult, but again, like just, I wouldn't let my kids down. I just think I took, I took the hits more than anybody else. So I just made sure that they had what they needed. I do think it was a difficult because we didn't, you know, we didn't socialize as much. And so the kids, I mean, they were young, so it was okay, but at the same time, it would have been nice for them to have some friends and do more things. But I did really try to hold it together so that they didn't be impacted. I think, you know, they were missing their dad. That was horrible. And I just didn't want any other area to, to be lacking for them. So I just tried to give them everything I could. So Jen, did you have a, have any caretaker Lyme rage? Did you get angry at your husband? Were you angry at all as a consequence of, you know, your life being a disaster at that point? I was never angry at Keith. I, I do have to admit, I think, oh my God, this is going to make me cry. But um, I think uh, there was one point where he wasn't, quite so sick just yet but he was definitely sick and we had heard from the doctor like oh this is all in your head and I do remember having that feeling like is this all in his head and and you know that's a terrible thing to admit but there was a time where I felt that because I didn't feel I didn't know where he went so there was that but I was never angry at him I was more angry at the system. Jennifer, what was the, what was the difference in childhood that your older daughter had versus the childhood that your younger children had because their dad was so sick? He was more there 
for her when she was younger. And, you know, we were able to do more things as a family then. But then when she was in high school and, you know, the rage started, she did catch that more than my kids now because I think by the time my younger kids came around we were a little bit more aware of that anger and what was causing it and also he couldn't so you know so she got the anger but then they got the absence because he couldn't be near them so I think that would would be kind of the main main difference. Well, what about some of the parenting decisions you made? For example, uh, I, I, I understand from our pre-roll conversation that you had made some decisions about your lawn. You made some decisions about your animals that oh, seem yeah. to be different for your older child than it was for your younger children. Can you share some of that with us and some of the decisions you made after learning about Lyme? Yes. So my older daughter, <laughs> we would take her hiking. Uh, she still loves camping and hiking to this day. We, she would always be out in nature, especially once we moved upstate. We didn't limit that because we didn't realize that there was a risk. Thankfully, as far as we know, she wasn't bit, bitten by a tick. You know, she doesn't have symptoms of Lyme disease, but uh, she kind of had a more carefree out in nature sort of childhood. But then my older kids, you know, when we moved to Kingston or even, but even, you know, before we moved to Kingston, I would like, I wouldn't let them touch grass. I wouldn't let them walk in the woods. And we lived in an area where that's what you do. <laughs> you, it's the country and it's Catskill mountains and you go camping. And so they, we didn't do that with them when they were, when they were that little, um, and then once we moved to Kingston, we ripped up our whole lawn and, and filled it with rocks. And our neighbors thought we were crazy. Their friends came over and said, are your neighbors from Nevada? <laughs> um, and, and they just didn't understand why we did that. But I couldn't let them outside on the grass feeling comfortable. There was one time we walked, there was a park near us where we lived and we could walk there. And the park, I felt okay because it had, you know, it didn't have grass. It had wood chips. I mean, I don't know, maybe ticks hang out in wood chips, but I don't, I felt okay with them there. But um, one day we walked across a lawn to get there and there was a tick on my, um, my son's head and I was, it didn't bite him. I got it off. And I, and then that was the last time I let them touch grass. I wouldn't let them go on the grass after that. And I didn't want them growing up. I mean, I love nature. My husband loves nature. My older daughter loves nature. Like it's our family loves camping and loves being outside. I did not want to raise flint and snow to be afraid to be outdoors. And I just feel like it's such an important part of being a human being to be out in nature. So I just ripped up the grass so we could be outside. Jennifer, could you talk us through how you ultimately found Dr. Cameron, who is probably one of the best Lyme litter doctors in the country? We, you know, through this whole time, I kept researching. And there was a point in time, you know, 
Keith definitely had neurological issues from the Lyme, you know, these mood issues and anxiety and depression. And I, there was a point in time when I said to him, let me do all the research because you can go, you know, when you go online, you can go down the rabbit hole and you can find all sorts of crazy things. And some of it's true and some of it's not. And I feel like when you have a brain fog and when you're, you're not thinking straight and you're so ill and you don't feel well, you know, it's hard to do your own research and to be able to weed through like anything, uh, what works and what doesn't and what sounds crazy and what doesn't. So I said to him, I said, let me do, let me do the research. And um, so I took over that for him and we just kept, re I kept researching and researching and researching and trying to find, you know, what would work. And at that point, we were still trying to find a regular medical doctor to help us. But, you know, there was a lot of discredit out there. You know, doctors had lost their licenses. There's the message that Lyme literate doctors are quacks. So, you know... <laughs> as you're going through this disease, you, you, you're still coming from what you've learned growing up, that when you're sick, you go to the doctor and they have the knowledge. They went to medical school. They're the experts. They're the ones that know, you know, they can fix you. You get sick, you take a pill, you get better. So we were still trying to find a doctor to do that for us. And, but I was afraid of Lyme literate doctors because of this discredit, you know, the message that discredits them. But finally, you know, you get to that point where you will try anything. And I said, oh, you know, we found first was Dr. Horowitz and his book, You Can Get Better. And, you know, I was like, oh, Keith, you ha we have to see Dr. Horowitz, but you can't see Dr. Horowitz anymore. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's changed, but at the time you couldn't get an appointment um, with him or anybody, you know, I, at that point he said, oh, I'm going to have people that you can come and see, but it, it wasn't an option at the time. So then I said, okay, well, let's keep looking to find, you know, another, you know, top Lyme literate doctor that you can go see. So at that point I found Dr. Cameron. Talk to us about what it was like with Dr. Cameron compared to all the other doctors, the osteopath, your primary care physician, and how it was different seeing a Lyme litter doctor versus a regular normal doctor you would see routinely throughout your life. Well, um, it was, uh, first of all, it felt better because, you know, they would admit that you were actually ill. He did a in-depth questionnaire about Keith's symptoms and it was more about like a clinical diagnosis than about testing at that point. You know, Dr. Cameron went through all the symptoms and kind of figured out, okay, you, you definitely have, you know, Lyme. And then these are some of the co-infections you may have. And let's treat you based on your symptoms and your, you know, what we understand about Lyme and co-infections. Jennifer, what was the treatment plan? that Dr. Cameron put Keith on after that first visit? He went on 
you know, and oh, and then the other thing, obviously, is like he was willing to give us long term antibiotics. And that was the treatment plan. So he put Keith, I believe the first one was doxycycline. Uh, he did go on a couple, you know, a number of different antibiotics. There was something that was an anti-malarial, you know, and they just tried different antibiotics, but it was long-term. I, I believe he was on antibiotics a year and a half. What was that like for Keith being on antibiotics for a year? Did it, did his health progressively increase? Were there ups and downs? Was he having adverse effects because it was, you know, impacting his gut health? Yeah, he absolutely had, you know, gut issues. Um, you know, we did the probiotics, you know, as recommended, but, um, you know, the doxycycline especially was hard on his stomach um, and on his body. He, you know, I try to think about was he getting better at that point or not? And it, it just felt like he wasn't getting worse anymore for a time. Um, but he definitely didn't feel well because of the antibiotics. After that one-year period, how did he feel? I mean, I'm just curious to see, did, did the, do you feel the one-year of antibiotics was worthwhile and it had a significant improvement in Keith's health overall? I did not, we did not feel that the antibiotics were working well, um, but we also didn't feel like we had any other options. And there was a point where we felt desperate to try something else. And this is the point when I started research. And so again, and I found first a book on uh, cannabis for Lyme by Shelley White, and then which led me to Stephen Buhner's book, Healing Lyme. And so throughout this time, Keith was taking cannabis. And I found this book, Cannabis for Lyme, and I read this book and I said, Keith, this is medicine. That's why you're taking this. It's why you it's medicine. You should be taking this. So that kind of helped take that out of the, out of the closet. And then... But Jen, the let's, Buhner, let's, let's stop there for a second with okay. the... Uh, use of the was he using marijuana? Was he using cannabis? Was it was it prescribed? How did he get that? So at that point, he was no, we, you know, uh, he had, he was just buying it, you know, from a friend and smoking it, I believe, and that helped him to feel a little better, you know, helped kind of manage his pain symptoms. You know, I just think he was taking, you know, he was using it and it was making him feel better, so he stuck with it but not really thinking of it as medicine. And then, you know, and he'd been, a, he'd been a marijuana user for a long time. It's not like that was something new for him, um, but just more recreationally than, you know, medically. So he was just using that and it was making him feel better just in terms of pain management. So when I read this book, the light bulb went on and it just, you know, there's so many properties to cannabis that, that helps, you know, and I'm not really very good on the scientific aspect of it, but, um, you know, that book really helped us both to look at it as medicine and to, uh, instead of smoking it, to now start ingesting it. And we would um, make uh, olive oil infused cannabis 
and um, from the flour that he would get from somebody. And, you know, it was all illegal because we were in New York, but it was worth the risk because it, you know, helped him to feel better. And you were doing this while Keith was on the antibiotics for the one year period and it was sort of helping. And at the time he just thought it was more of like a, a recreational, not medicinal value. And then you had that sort of epiphany that, Hey, this is, this is medicine. It's not just a recreational uh, yeah. thing to do. And yeah, when you finally went off the antibiotics with Keith after that one year, you continued to yeah. use cannabis as a medicine. And then you found, the herbal protocol by Stephen Buhner and, and started to use that. So how did, how did the combination of Stephen Buhner's herbal protocol and cannabis ultimately help Keith in his recovery? Because it seems like antibiotics for the three weeks and then the six weeks and now the one year really didn't do much other than just sort of stop the progression of his illness and never really yeah. helped treat the illness. Yes. So, well, so to back up a little bit with when I found the cannabis book and then that led me to the Buner book because she talks about, you know, how she, it was kind of the similar story where she was like kind of out of desperation, reached for the cannabis, helped her feel better, found the herbal protocol from Buner and that helped cure her. Or I don't know what we say at this point, but remission, but her Lyme, it helped her Lyme. So um, the, Buner and the cannabis came to me at the same time as we'd been doing the antibiotics. It was like a few months in. And the Buner protocol, we tried, that was really out of desperation because at that point I had had no training. I didn't know what I was doing. We were not sure whether Keith would live. That's how bad his, he was at this point. And it's scary when your loved one is so sick and you don't know <laughs> what to do the, there's, you know, you're seeing this doctor who's a top doctor in the field, who's giving you antibiotics that are not really helping and you, and not, not having used any herbal medicine before. Um, but the nice thing about the Buner protocol, and he's very clear about this, is that you can use it when you're taking antibiotics, which helped us feel okay about just trying it. And we went through his book based on his symptoms. You know, I don't know which co-infections Keith had, and um, nobody could ever tell us that information. And I don't even think they know, they don't have names for every, you know, co-infection that's out there. Um, so we just went down the list based on his symptoms and used the protocol. And within a few weeks of starting the protocol, Keith improved. It was very clear what was, what was helping. I'm sorry, Jennifer. This was literally after years and yeah. years of Keith's health continuing to decline. And at best, you yeah. pause the decline of his symptoms by taking long-term antibiotics, which is also having really negative effects on his body as well. And you finally find this herbal therapy, which was like a, a last-ditch resort, and it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Amazing. Did Keith have any, any and, herxing or side effects or symptoms that go along with the herbs? Um, yes. He definitely had times where he felt... Uh, like herxing or like felt worse, but, you know, kind of clear that it was, he was still getting better. Um, and we would just, 
you know, adjust his dosage based on what was happening or if there were new symptoms. Because I feel like one of the things we've learned was, okay, so you have Lyme, you definitely have co-infections. You want to treat first the thing that's bothering you the most and just start there and, and like work out. So you may get rid of some symptoms, but then a new symptom pops up or you know, oh, that symptom that wasn't really bothering you now is bothering you more. So we would adjust his protocol based on his symptoms. And that was when we were, we were clear that he didn't need the antibiotics anymore. And then we took him off the antibiotics. And it was very clear that he didn't get worse at that moment. He was still on the herbs. And so it was very clear to us what was, you know, helping him. How far would you say the combination of herbs and the cannabis recovered Keith's health? I think he got maybe 50% better. It's hard to say. Like we did herbs for a long time, uh, probably a year. It's a little bit hard to say too, because at this point, Keith also needed double partial knee replacement. So he, it's like a difficult time because he was feeling better from the Lyme, not 100% yet at all, not even close, but definitely on the mend. But his knees were so bad, he could barely walk. So we had to, he had to get this surgery, um, which then, of course, set him back a little bit more. Um, And then once he was, he did the herbal protocol. He was feeling better. He did his knee surgery because he had to go off everything for the knees. Uh, and then once he healed from the knees, then we felt like, oh, he could walk again without pain and he could, you know, he was stable and he didn't really need the herbs anymore, but he wasn't nearly a hundred percent. For those listening that are interested in trying the herbs that Keith had used, where did you buy them? Were they online? Was there a specific brand of herbs that you purchased? Yes. So in the Buner book, and you can find a lot about his protocol online as well, there are often recommendations of where to get herbs. I know Mountain Rose Herbs was one of them. There's a company, some of them we just got on Amazon. There's a company in Hawaii that makes a bunch of the tinctures. I mean, and he was on so many things. It was crazy. Like the amount of pills and tinctures he would take in a day, three times a day. There was many. And there is an herbalist on Etsy as well, which you might not think to look at Etsy, but um, that does like the combination of... um, the herbal, like the core protocol that Buner recommends. Oh, and there's another one called Green, I should talk about them because they were great, Green Dragon Botanicals, I believe. Um, and they have a lot of the herbs that you, can, that you need. So, so Jennifer, how are you and the children doing at this time? So at this time, um, I am trying to sell the business. <laughs> so, and that is uh, very like stressful involved, uh, you know, experience. So, um, the kids are doing okay. I think they're happy that, you know, dad is around more. He's still sleep, you know, at this point he's still sleeping a lot and he still has his sound sensitivity, but not to the same degree. So he's able to, you know, hang out with them more. 
Um, and you know, I am stressed and trying to sell this business and thinking about moving. So yeah, it was a bit of a crazy time. Happy that Keith seems stable and stressed to, you know, sell the business and move out of New York. So Jen, what was triggering the decision to sell the business and to move again? Well, after our experiences, I definitely felt like we needed a fresh start. That was part of it. I was, um, as much as I loved the business that I built um, and happy that it's still thriving now under new ownership, I was done with that. I needed to move on to something else. And then the biggest reason was to get out of such a, you know, an area with ticks. Like we wanted to find somewhere we could go where there was less lime and lime is everywhere and ticks are everywhere, but we just didn't want to be in such a, you know, such a highly concentrated lime area. When, when you live in New York, especially upstate, you either know somebody with Lyme or they know somebody, you know, everybody there's like Lyme is only like once removed from you at, in any moment when you're talking with somebody, everybody has Lyme or knows somebody with Lyme. So you guys were packing up and moving because you wanted to outrun the Lyme. Yeah. Yeah. How did you look when you looked in the mirror? What, what did you see looking back at you after this terrible journey that you and your family were on? Well, I felt old and I felt worn out and I hadn't been taking care of myself for a number of years and I had gained weight that I couldn't lose. So I, you know, I was just feeling old. What did you do next? I mean, what, what was the next set of events that caused you to have the positive changes in your life? So at this point we sold the business, which was a huge relief. I trained the new owners, we sold our house, we bought a camper, and we all moved into the camper. My my older daughter, you know, is in college and you know, at this point she's graduated and working and on her own. So uh we packed up the two younger kids into the camper and we decided, um, you know, by selling the business, I had bought myself some time before I had to decide what I was doing next. Um so we decided to take a, a year and just travel the country and see where we would end up, see if we could find a place where, you know, we felt like would be home. So, um, you know, it was amazing. We, you know, traveled down south and then we traveled cross country. Both myself and Keith, you know, were having, still having health issues. We didn't feel healthy. We didn't, like I said, I felt old. He felt worn out, um, you know, still not, he was stable, but not 100% by any means. So, uh, you know, out of like, you know, we just kept searching for something that would work. And then I found the keto diet and decided, even though, you know, again, <laughs> once you've gone through this thing, this, you know, illness, this journey, you're willing to try anything. And keto sounded crazy. You see all the articles in the news, like, don't try keto. It will kill you. It's the worst diet. Don't do it. But then on the other hand, you see all these people who are feeling better and they're losing weight and people with autoimmune disease feeling better. And we decided to just, you know, take the plunge and just try it. Um, 
there is somebody I follow online who had uh, brain cancer and was treating his brain cancer with keto, not just keto, but you know, it was, he was, um, you know, and felt like that was definitely part of his cure or his remission. So, you know, I felt like if somebody has brain cancer and can try this diet, we could try it. So we, we, you know, we do all the research and we start trying the keto diet and we both immediately feel better. And the world is a little more clear. You know, we both start losing weight effortlessly just by changing our diet, not adding in exercise. I mean, we're active, we move around a lot, but we're not big exercisers. So just by changing our diet, we start to feel better. But the same people that I was following with the brain cancer, um, they also would do the carnivore diet sometimes, and which sounded even more insane. But also everybody says it, it's a healing diet. So I start researching the, uh, the carnivore diet and we find this woman, uh, Charlene Anderson, who 21 years ago um, cured her Lyme or put her Lyme in remission, however you want to say that, um, through the carnivore diet. Um, so, you know, she tried antibiotics, she tried uh, herbs, she tried a number of different things. And finally, her and her husband said, you know, let's try nutrition. Let's see if maybe we can, you know, it's got to be, this has got to be the piece that's important. So she, but Jen, can um, I, I just want to interrupt you here yeah. and walk you back to the keto diet. So yeah, did you look for a dietary change that was going to be helpful to your husband? Or were you looking for a dietary change that would be helpful to you or something else? Well, I, I have to admit, <laughs> it was more about vanity than anything else. Um, as I said, I was feeling old um, at 45 years old. I was feeling old. I, you know, had gained weight. I didn't, you know, couldn't lose. So I really just didn't want to keep going on that path where I felt, you know, old and I wasn't happy with the way I was looking. Also, though, um, you know, my own fatigue and, you know, that definitely came into play, especially when you start to read these stories like, oh, so like I would look into it and say, oh, wait, great. I could effortlessly lose weight. Okay, that's that's what I'm looking for. And then, oh, wait a minute. Look at this person. They have an autoimmune disease and they feel better. And this person has brain cancer and it helped in his recovery. Like, this sounds amazing. So, so you were um, looking for something to help you improve your health. And as you began to do your yeah. research and your investigation, yeah. you came to the conclusion that it might be helpful to your husband as well. Yes, definitely. So now for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the keto diet, can you explain mm-hmm. generally what the keto diet is and how it was different from the diet that you were using prior to the discovery of the keto diet? Sure. So, um, at no point in our Lyme journey did we try any special diet. We just ate the regular standard American diet. I think at, you know, it was never suggested to us to use nutrition. Um, I know now there's you know, more recommendations about cutting out sugar and gluten and grains um, for people who have Lyme. But back then it was suggested to us at any point to try nutrition. And it wasn't like, we never even thought like to try it. And I think sometimes, um, well, I know sometimes when you have Lyme, it's hard to figure out what you even want to eat and what you can eat. So we just, 
you know, Keith just ate what he could and I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have lunch, so I didn't have any special diet. So for keto, it's a low carb, uh, high fat diet. You want to keep your carbs uh, to 20 grams or less for the day. Um, you cut out sugar and, you know, you cut out grains, you know, you don't eat bread. I mean, that you can make keto bread, but it's not actual bread as we know it. And that's pretty much it. The big, the biggest part is making sure you have enough fat and, you know, you know, a lot of people on keto will eat a lot of avocados and use avocado oil and you can make, you know, bulletproof coffee where you put in different oils and butter and things to make sure you're getting enough fat. Um, and then the thing, you know, the thing in the keto diet is that if you're eating carbs and sugars, those things spike your insulin. And that is what causes you to gain weight and to keep and to not be able to lose weight. So you want to keep your insulin levels very stable. So was it difficult for you to pivot from the diet that you were using to the now keto diet that you and your husband were utilizing? Um, it was, there was a bit of a learning curve. I am a foodie. I love food. <laughs> um, and I love, you know, wine and beer and, you know, bread and chocolate and sugar. Keith was, is more of like a salty snack kind of person. So he likes all that kind of potato chips and popcorn and things like that. Uh, we were both beer drinkers. So there was a learning curve and there was a two week kind of adaptation period. They call it the keto flu where you might not feel well. Um, it's not horrible. Um, and you can take electrolytes, which kind of help you get through it. Um, but you know, there was that period where, you know, I'd feel nauseous or, you know, I did have heart palpitations for a little while while my electrolytes were kind of balancing out, um, and things that maybe, you know, would kind of give you pause and say, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I don't feel great. But then there are days when you feel amazing and you know what's coming and you could tell like, oh, if I can just wait out these two weeks if I can feel like this every day, um, it's going to be amazing. So, um, you know, there was an adaptation, but it wasn't too difficult because you start to feel great. So Jen, when you were doing the research on the keto diet, did you come across anyone who is using the diet to treat their, or as a part of the treatment protocol for their Lyme disease? Because I know Tim Ferriss, the author of the four hour work week has credited the keto diet with curing his Lyme disease. Yes, somebody, I, I don't really follow him that much, but um, somebody I'm friends with does and did mention him to me. And yeah, so I knew of him, but beyond him, I did not know anybody specifically using keto for Lyme. Um, and I think that's probably part of the reason why we went carnivores because we found, you know, Charlene Anderson, and then there's a couple other people who use carnivore for Lyme. Well, so now talk to us about that pivot. Why did you pivot from the diet that seemed to be working well for both you and your husband? And I, and I, I think we should, we should highlight that he's on the herbal protocol. He's doing well. He now goes on to keto. He, he, you know, he's now doing some dietary intervention and he uses the keto diet. He's getting even better. So now you're taking another yeah. step. And why did you take that step? And how was it different to be on the carnivore diet than on the keto diet? I think the experience of seeing that 
you know, here's this diet where you'll be warned not to do it and it absolutely works and it's amazing and it's not dangerous and it's safe. And um, through that experience to say, okay, well, this works. Here's this other crazy diet that's related because, you know, people who do keto will go carnivore even for just a time or there's people within the keto community that do um, animal food keto or keto, whatever they're calling it at this point, where it's heavy in animal foods, um, will go carnivore. So it's, it's related within the community. So, you know, once you start researching keto and you start to see these carnivore stories of people who are reversing autoimmune issues um, and Lyme issues, you know, you say, okay, well, let's try it. You know, it sounds crazy. If we hate it, we can always stop. Um, but let's, let's give it a try because this might work for us. And, you know, Keith is not better at this point. Like he's all, at this point, he's only taking cannabis. Um, he's not taking anything else. We're doing keto and he's better, but he's not better. So, so Jenna, I'm just not clear just on the timeline. So is this before you discovered Buner and the herbal protocol, is this after Buner and the herbal, herbal protocol? This is after. So this is in March will be a year of carnivore. And, you know, we were keto. We were only keto for a month, maybe a little over a month before we started carnivore. So this was a year ago, exactly. Um, I'm sorry, Jen. I, I'm still not clear on the difference between the the keto and the carnivore diets. How would how would you describe the differences between the two? Okay. Yes. So the carnivore diet, you can also call it the zero carb diet, uh, is you remove all carbs from your diet, and basically you remove all plant foods. It is only animal based foods. There are different ways of doing carnivore. Um, the way we do carnivore is we just eat beef and drink water. Um, you can do, um, some people include eggs, some people include dairy, some, and then, you know, everybody includes meat. <laughs> um, you look for fatty meats. So, um, you know, chicken, sure, you can eat chicken. You definitely want to leave the skin on and you're probably going to eat the legs, but you're not going to eat so much the breast because it doesn't have as much fat. But it's mostly ruminant meat. So it's, you know, beef, lamb. Um, some people eat duck. You know, some people include fish. And then there's a whole movement of people who eat nose to tail. So they think it's important that you eat, you know, liver and, you know, other organ meats. I prefer to keep things very simple. The people who have been doing the carnivore diet the longest, you know, people who've been doing it eight years, 10 years, 20 years, most of them all just keep it simple and don't care about eating organ meat. So they just eat beef and bacon and that's it. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So that's why I'm gonna ask. So, so for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all you eat is beef. Yes, but we don't really eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner anymore. It, it, it's, I know it sounds crazy, and especially to me, who was such a foodie and love, you know, all kinds of food, love. But um, it, you change, something changes, and I pretty much only eat one meal a day or maybe two meals a day where, you know, I'll, 
you're not hungry. You don't snack. You don't need to eat as much as you did before. And so my my main you know thing that I eat is I'll eat probably I haven't eaten yet today. I'll probably eat closer to two o'clock maybe, and I'll eat a steak and some bacon and usually ribeye because that has the bet. Again, this is all about fat. So you want to make sure you have enough fat. If I have enough fat, I don't have sugar cravings. I don't crave any other food. Um, but if I don't have enough fat, then my, I, I could have a sugar craving. Um, and that's it. And that's it. I use butter and I drink water. So we go from keto to carnivore. Keith was on the fence about it because again it sounds insane um but and he wasn't a huge like steak eater he doesn't love or he didn't now he does but uh he didn't love like beef you know so it was kind of like okay we're just going to hold our nose and do it within a couple weeks just keith's health transformation was incredible like his color came back we both lost weight we're both now back to what we weighed in high school you know just his mood changed his he doesn't his social anxiety went away pain left brain fog left you know i did you know i didn't consider myself sick i didn't have chronic lyme i didn't have lyme ever but i had a brain fog that lifted that i didn't even know i had people who haven't seen keith in years you know friends and family you know, they see Keith and they say, wow, Keith's back. And it was, in my opinion, nothing short of a miracle. Like it was amazing. So how is Keith doing today? I would say he's between 90 and 95% better. He, he has an occasional flare if it rains. And even his flares now are more manageable than before. They don't last. We can kind of predict when they're coming. Um, he can up his fat intake a little bit to see if that can kind of help, you know, alleviate the flare. But beyond those, you know, few and far between flares, his energy is back. His, um, like I said, his coloring is back. It, it, it was so weird to think back now because I can see the difference, but I felt like he, now that I see his color came back, it was like he was gray for so many years. and he's able to play music. He's, um, he's going to coach the basketball team here in Joshua Tree for the kids. Like he's back and it's, it's amazing. How has this all changed you, Jen? Uh, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable transformational story about your husband who went from being a zombie to being back to being your husband again. How has this all changed you and how are you different as a consequence of this Lyme journey that you've been on with your husband? Well, when I sold my business, I knew that I would want to do something new, but I didn't quite know what that was. And I had this idea that I wanted to help people who had been through similar experiences. So at first I thought I'd be an herbalist because of the Buner um, protocol and how that, you know, absolutely in my mind saved Keith's life. But when I saw how the nutritional changes brought him back, then I decided I wanted to study to become a health coach so I could help people, you know, 
get reach remission quicker, you know, by using, you know, nutrition and then, you know, other lifestyle changes and, you know, movement and, you know, potentially herbs based on what they've been using so far. Um, So based on what we've learned, what works to help others. So, um, yeah, so I'm starting to work with people who have chronic Lyme and hopefully help them get to remission quicker than we did. And so they don't have to take this very long journey to get back to health. So now you, you are currently a certified health coach. What type of an educational program did you have to complete to become the coach that you've now become? Um, so I went through the Primal Health Coach Institute, and it's based on a more, you know, ancestral eating alignment where, you know, again, low carbs, no sugar. So Jen, I understand you're also working on some other really cool stuff as part of the personal transformation you've gone through. And uh, I believe that you've been interacting with people who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease in an effort to try to see if any patterns are developing uh, when you're doing these interviews. Yes. So interestingly, like (laughs) now that I'm um, awake to this world of coaching, I have I'm working with a business coach to help me, you know, uh, and, and she's specific for the health community. So she's a health coach coach. And part of our work was to interview people who have chronic Lyme to connect with the community. And I feel like these days, like we're so focused on being online, like personal interaction has kind of gone out the window a bit. So it was interesting to set up these phone calls. Um, with strangers I don't know off the internet. And it was amazing to find all these people willing to talk to me, you know, on the phone, (laughs) Um, just by posting in a few Facebook groups. I think the sad part of that is just that there are so many people suffering from chronic Lyme. It's, it's mind blowing. But, you know, it was pretty amazing to talk to people who had been there, or who are going through it and who understand and you understand what they're going through and they understand, you know, you understand what they're going through um, and to compare notes and, and to just listen to each other. And uh, it was pretty amazing. It was, it's interesting because some of the other health coaches and other, you know, areas, um, not Lyme, you know, we're having trouble finding people to interview and, you know, which I thought was interesting with Lyme, I had way more people than I was originally looking for. So it was pretty clear to me that, you know, there's a lot of people suffering and there's a lot of people who want to be heard. And I wanted to provide, you know, a space for that. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm keeping the interviews going, even though, you know, I'm done with my assignment, just because I feel like it's really good to connect. Um, And then I provided a phone number and, you know, just my email address. And I'm looking for people to come and, you know, leave a message or send me an email with with the answer to this question. And it's, you know, what is the one main thing you'd like people to know about chronic Lyme? And I'm going to take all these responses and share them on social media. And also, you know, I'm hoping one day to just put them together into a book or even just on a website, just so people 
opinions and, and things that they want you to know about chronic Lyme is recorded. And, you know, I think it's super powerful when you have, you know, a collection of these and you can hear similarities in people's experiences. You know, how many people have been told that this is all in their head? How many people have gone through it and their loved ones don't believe them? Um, and then the differences, you know, uh, I have someone I talked to is convinced she got Lyme through a spider bite. Um, and I've never heard that one before, you know, and just the things that people, um, want to share, you know, helpful things. Like I talked to one guy and he said, you know, I just, I just want people to know that they need to study and, and if they, you know, keep, keep at it, they'll find the thing that's going to work for them. So it's been pretty amazing to connect to people and to hear, you know, what they want others to know about their experience. So Jen, I have one final question for you, and you've, you've been very kind to share so much of your time and your insight with us, but I do have one last question. If, God forbid, tomorrow one of your children came into the house and they had a tick biting them on the leg, what would you do to make sure that child did not suffer from the terrible disease that their father had suffered from? So I would first remove the tick properly to make sure it all comes out without, you know, squeezing it or trying to put something on the tick that makes the tick, you know, release more into your body. Um, and I would save the tick and have it tested. Although that's kind of, in my opinion, not super helpful. You have to assume that the tick had Lyme. You just have to. Um, and then I would use the, um, Stephen Buhner has both a prevention, you know, um, guidelines and then you know, if you have a bite, you know, if you live in a, a Lyme, you know, high Lyme area, you should be taking astragalus every day, especially during tick season, although you can get, you can get in any season. So really year round. Um, and then on the bite area, you can put um, andrographis tincture and green clay, and you just leave that on the bite area and that will hopefully prevent an infection. And then you would up your doses of the astragalus. Um, and then I would also take them to the doctor and get, um, and get antibiotics. So I would try to hit it from both the herbal and the antibiotic side. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Jennifer Gladys. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jennifer Gladys and the carnivore diet, please visit her Instagram at the Holy Human. You can also sign up for her newsletter by going to www.lime.solutions.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created the Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your listeners for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.